want to thank Doyle and the praise team and all of you for participating in worship thus far. You have heard the gospel this morning in song, and I just am so thankful for that. So good morning, church. Good morning to those of you who are here with us. Good morning to those of you who may be watching online today, or to those who may be listening in at a later time. And a special welcome again for those of you who are visiting. I've met a few of you, and I see a lot of other faces that I didn't recognize, so we're glad you are here. I just want you to know you are in a special place. But I must inform you, I am not the regular and normal preacher, as Doyle alluded to earlier. That responsibility, of course, belongs to Brian Mashburn, who is in Colorado with his daughter, Callie, and we're glad he can do that. We also have several capable ministers on staff who could stand up here and do this this morning and do it without a heart missing a heartbeat. But the leadership wanted you to have a chance to hear from your elders. And so I guess I'm the one who drew the short or long straw, depending on how you look at that. Or as a friend of mine once called me, the baby elder. So, so for those of you who do not know me, my name is Greg Ogburn. I am one of the shepherds here. I also serve with the missions team and a very awesome small group that I'm very proud of. But I think one of my favorite roles that I get to participate in is being the co-executive chef at base camp. And we are excited. Base camp's coming up here in a couple of weeks. If you aren't ready yet, get ready. It's going to be a blast. It is a labor of love, and it is a joy. So for those um, who don't know, my wife is Joby Ogburn. That's J-O-B as in boy, I-E, and that's just in case you need to send her a sympathy letter after I'm done here today. Here at Southwest, we finished raising our three children as well, and I want to just shout out to them. Haley, our oldest daughter, who's married to Evan Benner. Preston and Carly Ogburn, which a lot of you know, who are members here. And then my youngest, Parker in Brooklyn, who are in Fort Worth, and have brought to us one of our greatest blessings in that of a granddaughter named Ely Grace. And she is just a joy. So, before I begin... I want to remind you of the three lenses we use to look at and understand Scripture. The first lens is the lens of story. It's not our story. It's God's story. It always has been and always will be. But we get to play a role. We also look at the lens of love, the language and action of the story. That's our role. And lens of wisdom. The culmination of the story that brings it all together, remembering that man's wisdom is God's foolishness. So, in light of being story, I want to take you back to the beginning. This is a little exercise that I want to do with you, and hopefully you can uh, participate fully in this. We're going to go back to Genesis 1 the very beginning, in which God created the heavens and the earth. And then next God says, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw that it was audience participation. Good. 
God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And God saw that it was a little more excitement, people. (laughs) Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And God saw that it was let there be lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And God saw that it was Oh, you, you dissipated a little bit there. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God saw that it was. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to their kind. And God saw that it was. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And God said that it was? No. God said it was very good. When we added man to the equation, it was very good. Now, that wasn't just a silly exercise. I want to draw your attention. I want to get you focused. And I want you not to trust me. I want you to listen. I promise I won't do that again. But I want you to listen. Be like the Bereans. So God had created this beautiful place. You might even call it a heavenly place. Where man could live and work and walk with God. A place to live a life to the full, and he gives us a picture of a life eternal. But then comes Genesis 3. Hold that thought. So one of the things we do or see in Scripture are some contrasts. And we're going to see this contrast in the text that uh, we've been given today. And by the way, Brian asked you to preach. Make sure you know the text before you say yes. So we're in the middle of a series that Doyle mentioned this summer going through the book of 1 John, and it's been awesome so far. And our text today is going to be 1 John 2, 15 through 17. But in Scripture, we see these contrasts. We see good versus evil. Paul likes to refer as spirit versus flesh. In 1 John, we've already seen light and darkness. And then we come to this text. This text tells us, do not love the world. But there's no contrast there. But if we don't love the world, what are we to love? My premise is, the offset to that is kingdom and king. So that's the framework I want you to be focused in as we participate today. So I'm straining to read my notes. Please don't mind my old age and having to go to the reading glasses so that I could be clearer as what's going on. But we're in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Love for the, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, I'm a CPA, and so I like to count things. And in this brief little three verses, the word world is mentioned six times. And I hope I counted right. But by my logic, that means there's something significant we need to understand there. So let's try to understand what John is saying about the world. First, by talking about what he's not saying. John's not talking about the physical creation. We already read at the beginning that God created the physical world, the heavens and the earth, and it was good, even very good. So it cannot mean or refer specifically to that. And we're not talking about the world that God loves in John three sixteen and 17, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to, to, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So it cannot be referring to specifically to the people of the world. But the Greek word is essentially the same in all this. Cosmos. So what is John trying to communicate to us? Well, the word's been, like a lot of other words in today's time, has been hijacked. The meaning's been changed and altered. And what he's referring to here is a worldly system with its practices and values and standards of a secular society. A system of living that opposes God's will and desires. And ultimately, it even opposes or denies the deity and sovereignty of God in Christ. So John goes on and clarifies this and confirms it in verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Not everything in the world, but everything in the worldly system. Its standards and values. And so let's talk about these three things. He gives us three different things that he thinks encompasses what the world is. The first is lust of the flesh. That's that internal coveting, church word for desire, of our carnal and fleshly nature. The basic nature that blinds us to spiritual truth. Of course, God has given us certain desires, and these desires are good. Things like hunger, thirst, weariness, Sex. And they're not all evil in and of themselves, are they? There's nothing inherently wrong with eating, drinking, resting, or having children. But when the world gets a hold of them, they can become sinful. Hunger is not evil, but gluttony is sinful. Thirst is not evil. But drunkenness is sin. Sleep and rest are gifts from God, but laziness is shameful. Sex is God's precious gift in the context of marriage, 
But outside of or in addition to marriage, it becomes immorality. In the world system, good things become evil when in excess or outside of God's design. That was the internal coveting. Then we turn to the external coveting in the next portion. The lust of the eyes, those things that gratify the sight and mind, the beautiful woman, the handsome man, the shiny new car, the flashy boat, the new gun, or even the meal at the restaurant at the table next to you. The grass grass is always greener mentality. I want what he has or even more. It is a spirit which can see nothing without wanting to acquire it and having acquired it, make sure everyone knows about it. It has no values other than material values. It is the opposite of contentment. And then the crown of the three, the pride of life. It refers to one who's laid claims to possessions and accomplishments which were not his in in order to cause others to think of them more highly than they actually deserve. It's a person who brags to impress others and ultimately sets themselves up above God, which Paul reminds us in Romans 12, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. In this part of the worldliness, the spiritual attributes of humbleness and humility are cast aside. So let's go back to Genesis 3. You held that thought. We're, going to come, we're back there now. And we're going to go to chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. We see all three of these different terms in this passage. Lust of the flesh, encapsulated in where she saw that it was good for food. Lust of the eyes, where she saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye. The pride of life, the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. The fruit was not evil. But they were not supposed to eat that fruit from that one tree. And it became evil outside of the design. And if you go back to verse 5 in chapter 3 there, the wisdom she's desiring was to be like God, knowing good and evil, In Philippians 2, in verse 6, Paul reminds us that not even Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, considered equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But we need to remember, the word lust, those deceitful desires, implies a lower standard than the actual commission of the sinful act. Just the thought or desire is condemned as worldly and not part of God's will. Did Jesus not even give us a glimpse of this in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about do not murder, do not commit adultery? 
and brought it down to a lower level of anger and looking lustfully. The dilemma is no one rushes headfirst into this world. But they go with baby steps. And it draws them in. And then before long, we're spiraling out of control before we even realize that we've adopted a love of the world. Second half of verse 15 tells us, if anyone loves the world, the one we just described, love for the Father, or it's also translated love of the Father, is not in them. I like the way Eugene Peterson in the message states it. Love of the world squeezes out God. Hear that again. The love of the world squeezes out God. Ouch. And then we see the consequence beginning in verse 17 of falling prey to this loving of the world. He says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In Revelation 20, a book that John also wrote, is wrapping up in this book the vision he received on the island of Patmos. And he tells us that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will meet the same end as Satan and the beasts and be thrown into the lake of fire. It will all be gone. For those who overcome the world, and we haven't overcome the world, we have overcome the world through Jesus and not giving ourselves over to the world. In the very next chapter, he tells us what's in store for those Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, the world, the fleshless, the sinful nature, has passed away. And he continues, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That was a pause for amen. Much like the Garden of Eden, we again will work and play and walk with God. Now don't let Revelation scare you. A quote from Randy Harris, I believe, sums up Revelation like this. Number one, God wins. Number two, pick a side. 
Number three, choose wisely. What will it be? The kingdom or the world? Remember John's reasons for writing this book. First, to make our joy complete, to keep you or stop you from sinning so that you may know that you have eternal life and wrap that all around in this umbrella, we say, to have an experiential fellowship with God. So why is John telling us this about the world? All the above. He loves his audience so much that he wants their joy to be complete. He wants to keep them from sinning so that they will have confidence in their eternal life and enjoy that relationship and fellowship with God. If we see how the world operates, then we can be on guard. We can look out for one another. We can protect each other. We can edify and encourage one another. It's a tale as old as time. From the beginning in the garden, at the time of John's writing, and even in Revelation. Even Jesus notes this epic battle in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24 tells us, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Sometimes referred to as mammon, meaning anything for wealth and property or anything of value. But a deeper dive into that word reveals all the above plus more, plus anything people serve, anything people worship, anything people idolize more than God. Like we saw with Eve, I am more and more convinced that the greatest opposing force to serving God is serving self. Look back at those characteristics of the world that we talked about. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And tell me that they are not the apex of selfishness. Every single one of those is nothing but pure selfishness. They are simply giving a picture of it's all about me. And if it's all about me, then it's all up to me. And as have we already seen from John in both our text and in Revelation, if it's up to me, I will wear myself out, I will fail, and my world will pass away. Why then would you give your life over to the losing team, to the world? I want to ask our elders and ministers to move about the room, take their places, along with their spouses, These men and women are here to serve you. They have already loved you and continue to love you. They pray for you continually. And they dream of a better kingdom life experience in this world and the next for each of you. They are here for you.
do not love the world or anything in the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. You must understand that to God, sin is sin. Sin will always be sin, no matter how we spin it, package it, rationalize it, justify it, or reframe it. And sin breeds sin. And sin separates us from him. God and evil do not mix. The love of the world is the love God hates. For those of us who strive to be in the kingdom side of that equation, we're reminded at the beginning of chapter 2, 1 John, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus is the answer. If we're living in the worldly system, you are the answer. You will fail. So let me ask you this question. Are you in a closer relationship with Jesus today than you were a year ago? Are we moving in the right direction? Let me say it a little sterner. If our goal is to spend eternity with Christ, why would we not want to spend more time and energy and effort and loving and anything else related to the kingdom life now? Eternity started already for us. If we want to live eternally, we need to be living like that. So I was having breakfast with my friend Kyle, who pointed me to a passage of Scripture, which was pointed to him, which is why I love wisdom and community, because it helps us out all the time. And we go to the book of Jude. And when I started reading the book of Jude and saw that the ending sort of summarized everything we talked about today in very beautiful language, I wanted to read it. So beginning in Jude 17, says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. That's the world. That's the world. It goes on. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, which is belief and action, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. 
to others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. That's the how. Building your faith, praying in the Spirit, love and mercy, looking out for others and hating what God hates in the world. First John's been full of it so far in, in what Brian has taught us. We need to walk in the light. We need to love our brothers. We need to not deny that we are sinners. And then he finishes off in his doxology. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and, without, and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. That's the way. It's all about Jesus, my friends, and what he has done through us, through his life, through his death, his burial and resurrection. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And as we move to love first and become more like Jesus, we must also learn to take up our cross and die to ourselves daily so that we may make him king of our life and live like him. And as we live like this, not even the gates of hell will stop us from advancing his mission. Let Jesus be your savior. It is only through him that you can be saved and is the only way to live your best life today and eternally. If we can help you in any way, the men and women around the room stand ready to provide direction, prayer, encouragement to love you like Jesus. Let's stand and sing.